0: 2 Chronicles chapter 24 in your Bible, 2 Chronicles chapter number 24, and when you find it, stand to your feet with me, and we'll read God's Word together. We'll read the first 11 verses here, 2 Chronicles chapter 24, and beginning in verse 1 through 11, 2 Chronicles 24. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zabiah of Beersheba. And Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada took for him two wives, and he begat sons and daughters. And it came to pass after this that Joash was minded to repair the house of the Lord." He gathered together the priests and the Levites, and he said to them, Go out into the cities of Judah and gather of all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year, and see that you hastened the matter. Howbeit the Levites hastened it not. And the Lord called for Jehoiada the, pre- the chief and said unto him, Why hast thou not required of the Levites to bring in out of Judah and out of Jerusalem the collection of According to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and of the congregation of Israel, for the tabernacle of witness. For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, hath broken up the house of God, and also all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord did they bestow upon Balaam, a false god, an idol. So at the king's commandment, they made a chest. They set it without at the gate of the house of the Lord." And they made a proclamation through Judah and Jerusalem to bring in to the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, laid upon Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought in and cast into the chest until they had made an end. It came to pass that at what time the chest was brought under the king's office by the hand of the Levites when they saw that there was much money The king's scribe and the high priest officer came, and they emptied the chest and took it and carried it to his place again. Thus they did day by day and gathered money in abundance. And thank you, and you may be seated. Let me give you the background story here of this chapter. There was a king called Ahaziah. And he was killed. He was murdered by a man named Jehu. It's another story in itself. So I'll just say the king was was assassinated. But his mother was named Athaliah. And she led a coup against the royal household, which would be her own kin people, her own grandchildren primarily. And she killed every one of them so that she would be able to take over and rule in the kingdom of Judah, in the nation of Judah. And this she did. She killed every one of the uh, royal line, the royal family. She killed every one of the seed of David, which had the right to the throne. Every one of them, she ended up having them killed. They were murdered. And she ruled over Judah for six years. She was a wicked, wicked woman, cruel, ambitious politically. The end justified the means with her, and she didn't care even to the point that she was willing to kill her own flesh and blood. But there was one of the king's seed that escaped, a little boy named Joash. And a Very brave woman saw this little boy, knowing that he was an heir to the throne, a descendant of King David. She took the little boy and hid him and kept him for a while. Then she took him to the temple. Well, the temple had been abandoned. I guess it was a good place to hide the child right under the queen's nose because no longer were they even worshiping God. The temple was closed down. The priesthood for all intents and purposes, been sort of abolished. And so little Joash and some people who loved him and cared about the seed of David inheriting the throne, they raised little Joash for the first six years of his life. And when he was seven years old, the priest who was a very very powerful man at that point in time, this priest Jehoiada actually led a resurgence against this queen and they they had her replaced in fact she was killed and he led a group of powerful military people and so on and little joash was anointed the king when he was 7 years old now of course a 7 year old can't rule over a kingdom other people did that till he was of age but ultimately he su- succeeded to the throne and here he was, the rightful heir of King David's line, keeping the promise of God to King David that he would have one of his descendants on the throne. Under Athaliah, the wicked queen, in those six years, the nation had completely turned against God, away from God. She had had many of the priests killed, and those that survived were dispersed and no longer able to function the temple had been forsaken and fallen into disrepair i guess the only person in it was a group of people hiding away somewhere in those catacombs of the temple and raising this little boy and so when joash came to power he did one thing that he's always been remembered for he had this chest and he placed it at the beginning of the uh, at the door the entranceway of the temple And he had people drop money in it and come, and he reopened the temple, and he reinstated the priesthood. And so now, once again, the worship of God was being carried out in the temple and in the nation of Israel. And interesting sidebar on Joash, he lived a godly life as long as Jehoiada, the chief priest, lived. But Jehoiada died, and when he did, it's like Joash fell apart spiritually. How often have I seen that? that there is somebody who is such a, a a stabilizing factor in someone's life that as long as they're around, that person will live for the Lord, and then when they're removed or they're gone for whatever reason then People seem to drift, and they fall apart. I've seen it in churches. I've seen it so many times. I'm seeing it today. I'm seeing people make professions of faith in Christ, and then they slip away. They follow ungodly counselors. Their influences become the wrong crowd, and they start out admirably, but they end up terribly. And they lived then in apostasy, and in denial of the very faith that they one time proclaimed. And, that, and it, just an interesting insight on that: you'd say, "Well, was Joe Ash really a believer? Was he truly a? Uh, was he truly saved in today's terminology?" And you see, we have a doctrine, and we believe in it strongly as Baptists: the security of the believer. We don't believe that people can get saved and lose their salvation, that when God saves you, he makes you a new creature in Christ, and you can't cease being that new creature. On the other hand, we also believe in the doctrine of, we call it the perseverance of the saints, the perseverance of the saints. And it means that if a person is truly saved, the mark of a truly saved person is they persevere. They don't turn back if you're truly saved, you're going to finish in the faith. Adrian Rogers always could say it so well, so much better than I. Adrian used to say, if your faith fizzles at the finish, it was faulty at the first. Boy, what a great statement. How doctrinally true, huh? If your faith fizzles at the finish, it was faulty at the first. There was something wrong with your profession. You never were saved if you turn away from the Lord. And so this was Joash. We don't know about that, but we do know one thing. He did bring the nation back to God while he lived for the Lord. And that chest, since the early 90s, we've been reenacting the chest of Joash in some ways here in our church. And so I put the chest down here, and we designated day as being the chest of Joash day. We give you a little card and ask you to make a commitment of your giving in the coming year, and then we ask you to come and drop that in the chest. It has no there's no name on the card, and we we stress that because this is a commitment that you're making to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to Bill Monroe, not to the Florence Baptist Temple. You are making a commitment from your heart that if providence allows it. If you're not sick, if you don't lose your job, if there are not circumstances you cannot control, if life goes on pretty well for you this year as it is now, you're going to give this much money to the Lord, and you make a faith commitment, if you will. And so, at the end of this stewardship month here, I want to emphasize again our doctrine of stewardship. I haven't preached an entire message on it, I call this the nutshell of stewardship, the nutshell of stewardship. What's the nutshell of stewardship? Well, it begins with the idea of God's ownership, God's ownership. I cannot stress this enough. This is such a powerful doctrine, and it applies every day to every one of us, that God owns it all. God owns it all. And that concept of God's ownership is taught all the way through the Bible. In fact, Genesis 1-1 is where it starts. 1-1, Genesis 1-1. God created the heavens and the earth. So if God created the heavens and the earth, if you create something, does it not belong to you? If somebody writes a song, creates a song, they copyright it, we recognize it belongs to them. They earn royalties off of it. If an author writes a book, if he creates a work of, of literary value, and it's published as a book, and he copyrights the book, he owns that book because he created it. And through the Bible, you see this principle over and over. Psalm 24 and 1, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, and all they that dwell therein. And in Psalm chapter 50 and verse number 12, the Bible says very simply, the world is mine. The world is mine. This is God speaking. He says the world and everything in it belongs to him. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, all things were created by him and For him, both in heaven and earth. Which means if you go to Mars, that belongs to God too, things in the heavens. If you go to the further star, that belongs to God. And the earth and everything that's in the earth, it all belongs to God. God's ownership is the basis of biblical stewardship. I mean, it's just logical, isn't it? Amen. That if God created it, doesn't he own it? Well, sure He does. And He created everything. You say, well, He didn't create my car. Well, no, He didn't, but He created every material that went into that car. So, indirectly or directly, Almighty God has created everything that you can see in this entire universe. And His ownership is the basis of His sovereignty. We We sometimes speak of the sovereignty of God, and we mean by that sovereignty is the rule of God, that He has the right to rule, to reign as a king. He he has the right to command, and He has the right to control everything, sovereignty. Well, you see, since God owns everything, He has the right to rule over it. So, the sovereignty of God flows out of the ownership of God, His creative ability and all that that he created in all that he owns. There's a great Baptist leader of all 50, 100, 50 75 years ago named J.M. Gambrell, known as a great scholar, great theologian. And I have a quote here from him, and it's such a powerful quote. Listen to it. In law and in reason, the wool on the sheep belongs to the owner of the sheep. If a man owned sheep and he sold them, he could not afterward enforce a claim on the wool they might grow. The right in the wool follows the right in the sheep. The wool is an appurtenance, which means a right that comes with the ownership of something. This title holds both the sheep and the wool. The sheep cannot hold property because the sheep are property themselves. The wool is theirs only in the sense that their skins are theirs and their heads and their feet by way of accommodation. Now, Dr. Gimbrel says, God's people are God's sheep. They are his creation by preservation, by redemption, and by their own consent. And the supreme title to them is in God, and this title holds true against all comers. There never was a better title to any property than the title God holds on His people. Our times are in His hands. Whether one of us lives another day is holy with God, And while men live and move and have their being in God, they must allow his right to do what he will with his own property. The ownership of God. Isn't that powerful? Boy, I read that and I thought, wow, does that not say it succinctly and powerfully? In law and in reason, the wool of the sheep belongs to the owner of the sheep. And in law and in reason, logic. If God created the entire world, then he owns the entire world and everything in it and everything that it can produce. The Apostle Paul reminds us of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. It's a pretty familiar verse. It says, You are not your own. You are not your own. You are bought with a price with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't belong to yourself. You don't own yourself. As a Christian, you were ransomed and you were redeemed. You were preserved and you were saved by the blood of Jesus Christ for your soul. And you, from your body, your soul, and your spirit, you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that then is essentially the motivation now for stewardship. You see, if God owns me and I'm his sheep, anything that I have or anything that I produce is like the wool that the sheep produces. And God has title to both me and he has title to what I can produce and what I have and what I own as a Christian. And, but there's another motivation in our stewardship. And that is that because he shed his blood and bought us with his blood, that today we love him. And nobody ought to come and make a commitment to give a penny to the Lord's work here at this church next year because you have to, because you feel guilty, because you you, you feel pressured to do so. You see, I give my money to the Lord because I love Jesus Christ. I appreciate the fact that he bought my soul through death at Calvary. I love him today because of what he endured for me, and I'm grateful and appreciative to him. I could never do enough to repay him. And so he asked me to give him a dime out of a dollar and a ten out of a hundred and a hundred out of a thousand. He asked me to give him time every week because one day belongs to him. And he rested on that day, and he asked us to rest, and he asked us to worship on that day. And so he asked my money. He asked of me my time. He asked of me my service. He's given me certain gifts and abilities, and he's given every single Christian a gift, and he's given every single Christian an ability, an and He gives us opportunities as well. And He wants us to serve Him, and He wants us to give back to Him to demonstrate our love and to support His work and His kingdom expansion here on this earth. And so, stewardship is a very logical, logical thing. It really flows out of the gospel that I'm a saved person, And what can I do? I cannot do one thing to earn my salvation. I cannot do one thing to help God out with my eternal life. But I can show my love and appreciation to him through my stewardship. And so stewardship is such a powerful thing. And it flows out of the gospel. You see, we all heard that news, the gospel, that we were lost all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that if, if that isn't bad news enough, there's more bad news. And the bad news is that because we've sinned, there's a penalty on our sin. That penalty must be paid. That penalty is death. And that wonderful good news then that Christ came and died for our sins and was raised from the dead. And, that, and then the promise that he's given to us of more good news, the good news that if we put our trust and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, He will, in fact, wash us from our sins. He will come into us and dwell in us in His Holy Spirit, and He will give us everlasting and eternal life. He promises that over and over and over throughout the Scripture. Now, if He's done all of that for me, if the gospel has meant that much to me, then ladies and gentlemen today, Don't you think that giving God a tithe and serving him with my time and my gifts, don't you think that's a reasonable thing on his part that we would do? So God's ownership, number one. And then number two, there's man's stewardship. What is a steward? A steward is a manager. A steward is a manager. A steward might be called a trustee you are a manager of the things that God has given to you in your life. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? You're a trustee, or you might say you're an administrator, an administrator. Ryan Caudill is our church administrator. And and what's Ryan's job duties here? Well, the property, and uh, he would be our HR director, I guess, if you want to use that terminology, the matters pertaining to our employees and our people here and the program that is running here, he manages that. Now, he doesn't own a thing here. He doesn't own a thing here, but he's in charge. He's responsible for certain areas here. He's our trustee. We put him in trust to administrate, to carry out those things. And so it is with us. We are stewards. You are a steward whether you choose to be or not. You can never give a dime the rest of your life and never serve God a minute the rest of your life. You're still a steward. God has given you these things, and he's entrusted you with them. Do you know where stewardship started? It started in Genesis chapter 1 when God said, I'm going to make man. I'm going to make him in my image. And then when he made him, he spoke to Adam. And what did he say? Adam I want you to have dominion. I want you to have dominion over the fowls of the air, over the cattle, over the fish in the sea, over the vegetation that grows. I'm giving you this planet. I'm putting you in charge of the whole thing, Adam. And you are my trustee, my administrator, my steward. And you're to, you're to manage this, this, this planet for me, if you will. And so stewardship began right there when God said, I want you to have dominion over all this earth, over this planet, if you will. And our stewardship responsibilities today then extend to everything that God has put, uh, put in our hands, has given us dominion over. Just like Adam, God gave him the stewardship of the whole earth. But he's given you and me time and money, and possessions, and abilities, and gifts, and talents. He's given us a family. Our stewardship responsibilities extend certainly to our families that we open up the Word and raise our families and direct our families according to the Word of God. That's, being, that's a part of stewardship. And even our own health, God gave us a body to live in while we're on this earth and that body is to be used for His glory. It belongs to Him. And even your own personal health is a stewardship matter. In fact, our stewardship responsibilities extend further than that. They even extend to the intangibles that we don't even think about we have responsibility for. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, do you know what Peter said? He said, We are stewards of the manifold, which means uh, many-faceted, multifaceted. We are stewards of the grace of God, the blessings of God's grace in our life. We're to be stewards of it. We're to manage that. We've been put in trust with the very grace of God. And Paul even goes further and says in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 4, He said, I thank God that I've been allowed to be put in trust with the gospel. I've been put in trust. That's a trustee. That's a steward. That this knowledge of the gospel, the most important thing that anybody can ever know or understand on this earth, this good news of Christ dying for all of our sins and raising from the dead. This good news, it's come into my hands and into my possession. I'm a trustee of it. I'm responsible for it. Primarily, I'm responsible for sharing it with other people. Christ died for the world. He died for every creature. He didn't die for me and my family and my few and no more. My stewardship responsibilities are time, money, possessions, family, health, gospel, grace. There is no field as broad as the broad of stewardship, and no field as easy to be understood in the Bible, by the way. It's pretty clear what the Bible teaches on it. It includes every human calling and every activity and every person. The Bible doesn't just come right out and say this point blank, but I personally believe that even unsaved people have stewardship responsibilities because God allowed you life, and he allows you the air to breathe to live your life. And if you never accepted his son, you still have responsibilities for what he's given to you. Pretty sobering thought, huh? In the book of Luke chapter 16, there's a Man who owns a great, like we would call plantation, a great farm, a ranch. And he's an absentee owner, and so one day he calls in the man he's put in charge of it. and he says, "I've been away for a long time, and how's the farm doing? How's the ranch doing? Give account of your stewardship," he said to him. "Give account of your stewardship." And so you see, there's another important part of the whole stewardship concept. Stewards are accountable. Stewards are accountable. Every trustee is accountable for what he's been put in trust over. Give account of thy stewardship, and every one of us will do that. We call that the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema judgment. I've taught on it much Someday I will stand before the Lord in His judgment. I won't be standing there to find out if I'm going to heaven or hell. That's already been established. I have salvation by God's grace. But I still will give an account of all the deeds done in this body, is the way the Bible phrases it. And I will give account of my stewardship. What did I do with my time? What did I do with my money and possessions? What did I do with my family responsibilities? What did I do with my service to the Lord through the church? He gifted me in some way, and so I'm to use that gifting to further his work here. I would have you turn to 1 Corinthians in your Bible for a moment, and I want to show you a very important stewardship verse It's in 1 Corinthians, and it's chapter number 4, and it's verse 2. There's one requirement that stands out for us as stewards and our accountability to God. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, He's not talking just about church attendance. That's included in the mix. We tend to say, well, somebody's faithful, and we mean they're faithful in their attendance at church. And, of course, that verse, faithful, includes that idea. But that passage there, if you look up that word, the idea of being faithful there is being loyal, being loyal to the Lord, to his word, to the faith to the church, and all the things that God has given us responsibility for. It, it has the idea of dependability. Dr. Jones used to say, the greatest ability is dependability, kids, when he was speaking to his students there. The greatest ability is dependability. Well, boy, it sure, that, that sounds right to me. Reliability, we might say. And I told you, uh, our society has got so many different problems. And right near the top of the list is this whole idea of today of, of unfaithfulness and undependability, independability and unreliability. I told you about being at the, um, uh, being at the grocery store, and, and they couldn't hardly service the customers in there because the woman said, we hire people and they won't even show up for work. Well, see, that's a sign that people don't understand stewardship, stewardship responsibilities. Keith, before the service was talking to me down here, and he he was talking to me about how that a a local man here, a car dealer, can't even get the cars deal uh, that, that he's ordered and already paid for. He can't get them delivered to him because there's not enough truckers to bring them to him. And so, in every area of our life, this whole idea of dependability, loyalty, faithfulness, reliability is just broken down because people now think of themselves as being autonomous rather than responsible to other people as well as to the Lord. I always enjoy preaching on stewardship. And here's why I enjoy preaching on stewardship. I know preachers tell me, boy, I just, I break out in a sweat when I have to preach on stewardship or money. And I can honestly say I look forward to preaching on it, and I think I've preached on every stewardship text in the Bible four times now, I don't know. But I enjoy it. And I'll tell you why I enjoy it. The value of stewardship is it calls us away from the spirit of our age. It calls us away from the spirit of our age. Stewardship is a call for you to evaluate your life as a Christian. What is important to me? What are my values? What am I loyal to? What will I be dependable and reliable about? How do I handle money? How do I handle my time? What am I doing to invest in the life of my family, my children, my wife, my husband? What am I doing in terms of serving God through my local church? Stewardship calls us away from having divided loyalties, a divided heart. You see, it's so easy to profess to trust the Lord when in reality in the secret places of our heart, we're really trusting money and we're trusting things and we're trusting people. We're not trusting the Lord. We may say we are, but are we really? And stewardship calls us back. Am I really depending upon Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior? even for the things of this life. Matthew chapter 19 is an account that's very familiar to you. It's the story of the man we call the rich young ruler, young man, wealthy man, man of position, came to Jesus one day, and you remember he said, what must I do, good master, that I may have eternal life? And Jesus told him to keep the law. And After Jesus enumerated the points of the law, the young man said to him, Oh, I've done all that from my youth up. I keep the law, Lord. I've not broken the law at any point. Well, he really had. And Jesus put his finger on the very point. He said, Okay, if you've done all of that, go, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, come, take up your cross and follow me. And there's an interesting verse here. In verse 21, Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And when the young man heard that, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away sorrowful when Christ tested him. See, he said he had kept all the law. No, he hadn't. He broke the first point of the law, that you're to love God above all else. He didn't. He loved possessions above all else. He broke the last point of the law, thou shalt not covet. And he loved his possessions so much he could not part with them. And Jesus tested him, and he failed miserably, Completely he went away sorrowful. He could not pass the test the Lord gave him. Now, he loved his position. He loved his possessions. He loved this life so much, he couldn't do what the Lord had asked him to do. Now, the Lord never asked you and me to give up everything we have and sell it and go and all that. He never never did that with anybody except this one man, and the point he was making there was, I'm going to show him that he's not really telling me the truth. And he was sorrowful because his heart was divided. He had a divided mind. And if you have your Bible open there, just turn back to Matthew chapter 6, and this summarizes what I'm trying to say to you. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us why that man was sorrowful. His heart was divided. Matthew 6 and 24, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. And you cannot serve God. You cannot serve God in mammon. What is mammon? It's material things. It's possessions. It's money. Things of this life. You cannot serve two masters. You'll value one and not the other. You'll love one and not the other. So the value of stewardship. It calls us back from falling into covetousness and idolatry, serving other things more than we love God. And the test is really not very big. It's a tithe and it's service and it's stewardship of family and stewardship of the gospel of Christ. Bow your head with me if you will, please.